Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 107th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are featuring the Franklin Battlefield. This was suggested to us by listener Thomas Cartwright. And Denise, this was a very bloody battle. I didn't know much about it, and there's probably a lot of people who don't know much about the Battle of Franklin. It's not talked a lot about, but it is as horrific as any of the other Civil War battles. Wow, and it's not that far from home. It's right up near Nashville, if I believe. We actually probably drove right past the cutoff where we could have gone to see it, but, you know, (laughs) I guess it gives us another reason to head on into Tennessee. Yes, so thank you, Thomas, for another reason to go on another road trip. And we had a really neat meetup with one of our HGB research crew, Sharon Spungen, had a great time hanging out at the Animal Kingdom with her. Absolutely, her and her husband, so thanks for meeting up with us, guys. Before we get into the show, we would like to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if anybody wants to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we do want to thank Tracy for her kind email and also the kitchens. And Jenny sent us emails suggesting some locations that we will be doing in the future. We also got an email from Kristen letting us know that she loves the show and both of us. And she was going back to our Chicago episode, Denise, when we were doing the road trip. Mm-hmm. And she said she's actually has some connections to some of the places that we visited. One of which was she grew up listening to the story of Resurrection Mary, and she said that she'd always been fascinated with her story for her whole life. I have several family members buried at Resurrection Cemetery. Oh, wow, it's a beautiful cemetery. I even have an aunt my family refers to as Resurrection Lottie. Back in the 80s when my Uncle Eddie passed away, his wife Lottie, my grandmother's sister, would frequently visit his grave in the year following his passing. She found that this helped process her grief, and she would often go alone. On most days, the cemetery closes at 5 p.m. During the summer months when the sun sets later in the day, she would often lose track of time at her husband's gravesite and would find herself locked in the cemetery after closing. Oops. (laughs) That would be kind of frightening and kind of cool at the same time. She would have to drive around the very large cemetery to find a maintenance worker who would be able to unlock the gates and let her out. Good thing they were still there. My Aunt Lottie was a very thin, fair-skinned Polish woman with a wispy blonde perm. The running joke in my family was that people driving down Archer Avenue would see my aunt walking around the cemetery after hours and would get quite a scare. (laughs) I'm surprised we didn't hear any legends. Maybe they thought she was Resurrection Mary. That might be. We're going to start blaming your aunt for this whole thing. If my aunt was late to the family function, we would always say, has anyone checked Resurrection? Aunt Lottie might be locked in again. (laughs) She also said that she's been to the Willowbrook Ballroom and also frequented the pub that's across the street called the Irish Legend. And she said that Al Capone used to hang out at that tavern. 
back in the 20s and that there's even tunnels that are beneath the Willow Spring Road there that leads to the basement of the Willowbrook Ballroom. Supposedly, if Capone needed to make a quick exit from the Willowbrook, he would use these tunnels to hide out in the bar. And there's a lot of ghosts apparently haunting that location as well. And then she wondered if we'd ever heard of Bachelors Grove Cemetery. And we have, I believe, when we needed a little extra stuff to fill in a show, it was, gosh, like episode two or three or four, something like that. We, I think, talked about some of the most haunted cemeteries in America. And Bachelors Grove was one of them that had come up. And it sounded like a really scary place to go. Most definitely. She said there's a lot of ghost stories about this. She actually lives about five minutes away from it. And in her college days, they would go and explore the old cemetery during the day. But she wouldn't dare to go there at night. I don't blame her at all. But apparently there's a lot of teenagers that like to hang out there, so they've been trashing the place. So you know what I think about that. The canal behind the cemetery was no less creepy. Legend has it mobsters had been dumping bodies in that canal for years. And everyone who grew up on the south side has a friend of a friend or a sister's friend's brother who had an experience here. When I was there, all I found was poison ivy. Ooh, hopefully you didn't (laughs) find it personally. (laughs) Also wanted to thank Lindsay Smith. I noticed that she had tweeted out over on Twitter that she had written an article. And Denise, she included us in this article that she had written. Oh, that's very cool. About podcasts that help her make it through two seven-hour drives a week. And History Ghost Bump was one of them. Oh, that's really cool. So we greatly appreciate that, Lindsay, for you writing that about us. We want to thank Jenny Lee Watts. She is one of our listeners from Dananda. And she went out to an old cemetery and she shared a ton of pictures and videos with us over on the Spooktacular crew page. So if you guys haven't been over there in a while, if you belong to the crew, be sure to check that out. If you haven't joined us, go ahead and join us over there on Facebook. We'd love to have you. And then, Denise, going back to the Faring Tavern episode that we just did, we had kind of wondered about those holes in the wall that had the doors and what the purpose of that would be. We heard from Bob over in the UK about these secret holes that they used to have in walls there, and they were called priest holes. And he asked if we'd ever heard of those, and I said, I don't think we have. And apparently, priest holes were concealed spots created especially for priests so they could hide away safely during a time when Catholics were persecuted. Under Queen Elizabeth I, priests were often imprisoned, tortured, and even killed. Priest holes were specifically disguised within a house to baffle search parties. So maybe that was the thinking that they had going on here, that these were some kind of a priest hole, just not for priests. Michelle Dupriest said of the Northern Underground Railroad, I think the reason the Underground Railroad went so far north is because slave catchers would continue to hunt them into the north. So basically, I think just making it over a certain geographic border didn't mean safety. I could be mistaken about this, but I think that would possibly be a reason. And Jill Phoenix said of the hiding places in the West, her family had hidden rooms to hide the family from Indians and to store fruits, veggies, and meat. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Paige. Hey, Paige. Laura. Hi, Laura. Ken. Hey, Ken. Tom. Hi, Tom. And then Denise, on the exact same day, we had two Nancys join us. Hey, Nancy Squared. A little bit of doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. So we have Nancy S. Hi, Nancy S. And Nancy from Down Under. Hey, Nancy from Down Under. Welcome. Denise, are you ready to go to the Franklin Battlefield? I most certainly am. Let's hope we don't meet anything other than reenactors there. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com.
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. In today's Moment in Oddity is suggested by Jorge Almeida. Up in the Fafu Mountains of northern Portugal, on a remote hilltop, is a most unusual house. This is a home that looks straight out of a Flintstones cartoon because it's made out of stone and set between four large boulders. It's known as Casa do Pinedo, or House of Stone in English. Many people who see a picture of the house think that it is photoshopped, but it is quite real. Thousands of tourists visit the location each year. The two-story stone house features the traditional front door, windows, and shingled roof, but also amenities like a fireplace and a swimming pool that was carved out of one of the boulders. Much of the furniture is made from stone, and the stairs were fashioned from logs. Large three-bladed wind turbines lined the hills near the house and helped provide energy to it. It was built in 1974 as a family's vacation home, if you will. The fact that it blends into the natural setting so well is part of what has made it so popular. It is so popular that the current owner has had to leave to get away from all of the tourists. Rubbery attempts have forced the installation of a steel door and bulletproof windows. How the family managed to build this home and get the supplies here is a mystery. The fact that the stone house of Portugal appears to be straight out of the Stone Age certainly is odd. up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> this Day in History. This Day in History is by Jessica Bell. On this day, February 23rd in 1904, the United States acquires control of the Panama Canal Zone for $10 million. The idea of creating a water passage across the Isthmus of Panama to link the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans dates back to at least the 1500s, when King Charles I of Spain tapped his regional governor to survey a route along the Chagres River. The realization of such a route across the mountainous jungle terrain was deemed impossible at the time although the idea remained important due to the need for a potential shortcut from Europe to Eastern Asia. The French were the first to try to create the passage, but after 10 years of work, the spending of $260 million, and the loss of 20,000 lives, the French sold control of their rights and property in the area to the United States for $40 million. When a proposed treaty over rights to build in what was then a Colombian territory was rejected, the U.S. threw its military weight behind a Panamanian independence movement eventually negotiating a deal with the new government in 1903 that gave them rights in perpetuity to the canal zone. Part of the deal was that the United States agreed to pay a rent of $250,000 per year to Panama for a zone six miles wide. The Panama Canal, a 52-mile-long waterway, was completed in 1914 at a cost of $352 million, remarkably under budget and under schedule. Control of the world-famous Panama Canal was transferred from the U.S. to Panama in 1999.
The History Goes Bump Podcast. Franklin, Tennessee is a warm, small town that just oozes history. The Civil War's Battle of Franklin took place in this town in 1864. This was one of the Confederate Army's worst battles. In fact, the assault has been dubbed the Pickett's Charge of the West. The Carter House, the Lotz House, and Carton Mansion sit where the battle took place. As is the case with so many battlefields around the world, this one is reputed to be haunted, as are the nearby homes. Join us as we explore this fascinating town, the horrific battle, and the history and hauntings of the Franklin Battlefield. Now that's saying a lot, the Pickett's Charge of the West. As listeners who've listened to the Gettysburg episode, or if you know anything about the Gettysburg Battle, Pickett's Charge was... A huge folly. Yes, it was. I mean, basically it was, let's pick you off while you just sit in the middle. So here we're going to have the Confederates doing that again. On October 26, 1799, the city of Franklin was incorporated and named for Benjamin Franklin in the state of Tennessee. The man responsible for both was State Senator Abram Murray Jr. Before the Civil War, Franklin was in one of the wealthiest counties in Tennessee, and it was the center of the plantation economy in the state as well. The Civil War weighed heavily on the town. Union forces occupied the city for three years. It's difficult to talk about the battle named for the city without referencing the entire town. Every building that existed during the Battle of Franklin was used as a hospital, whether it was a private home or a public gathering place. It took decades for the town to recover economically. The Battle of Franklin was one of the bloodiest of the Civil War, which is saying a lot since so many of the battles were devastating in this war. There were 8,500 casualties in this one-day battle that took place on November 30, 1864. Atlanta, Georgia had fallen to General William T. Sherman on September 1, 1864. Confederate forces that had been defending the city were under the command of General John B. Hood. The defeat caused General Hood to take his forces that numbered 30,000 into Tennessee. Hood thought he could weaken Sherman by going after the supply line coming from Nashville. Sherman wasn't worried about a supply line at this point. He figured that his army could take whatever they needed from the homes along their path. He did, however, send the Ohio Army under General John Schofield into Nashville to hold the area for the Union. That army was 30,000 strong. In Nashville, General George Thomas already had 25,000 Union soldiers. If Schofield got there in time, the Confederacy's Hood would be outnumbered almost two to one. Hood decided to meet Schofield before he got to Nashville, and he was successful in splitting the company. But Hood and the Confederacy were going to start making a series of mistakes. The first would be miscommunication. Schofield's army was able to regroup and pass by Hood's men in the night unscathed. So they actually passed within earshot, and nobody heard them. Nobody knew they were going by. Nobody stopped them. Well, there was only 30,000 of them. It's just, I don't know how they did it, but... Yeah, especially if you've ever been just around not even like 500 people, there's just a murmur that happens sometimes just from the breathing and the whispers. There's just, even if people aren't being loud, there's a murmur, and so it is amazing they got through. I have a feeling, since this was due to miscommunication, that somebody probably thought they were supposed to let them go by without trying to stop them. Maybe they thought it was a retreat. I don't know. Yeah, that I'm not sure. The Union troops made it to Franklin. They regrouped and formed an imposing line of defense. Hood made another bad decision by deciding to pursue Schofield into Franklin. 
And the reason why is that this was going to become like Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. The Union was tucked nicely behind secure areas, and the Confederates were going to have to cross two miles of open ground to even get to where they could engage the Union. General George Wagner of the Union met Hood's forces a half a mile in front of the Union's main line. Hood managed to press ahead because the Union soldiers behind the line didn't want to kill any of their own with friendly fire. Hood's forces slammed into the Union right outside of the Carter family's house, and combat took place in the gardens there. The Confederates started to win using bayonets, shovels, whatever they could find to fight. Union Commander Emerson Opdyke had disobeyed orders to join the Union line at the front, and he had forces behind the Carter house. This was good because he was then able to surprise the Confederates and kept the Union from facing disaster. I'm not sure why General Wagner decided to move his line out here in front of where the Union already was. I don't know if they thought, well, we're going to have this line stop them before they even get close. But it was really kind of stupid because there probably wouldn't have been as many losses on the Union side if they all would have just stayed dug in where they were at. Exactly. Because they could have just easily picked off Hood and all of his forces. Unfortunately, this General Wagner decided he wanted to engage, and we know it still happens to this day in wars. We've heard about it over in Afghanistan and such, that sometimes friendly fire kills fellow soldiers because you're firing into an area where they're at. Right. And then the commander, Opdyke, pretty good thing that I don't know if he didn't want to engage, and so he's like, no, I'm taking my troops back here, and we're just going to hide out. I'm not sure, but it was a good thing that he did that, because then they were there to meet the Confederates when they got through. So here we have... The Carter House. We just kind of mentioned it a little bit in passing there. This is a house that people are actually living in. This was built by Fountain Branch Carter in 1830. It was a one and a half story brick house meant to house his family of 12 children. (laughs) That's about 12 too many for me. Mr. Carter already had a successful business in town and he was looking to pursue farming at this new home. He was very successful and grew the farm from 19 acres to 288. Wow. He also installed a cotton gin. This battle that is currently raging around this beautiful farm is now tearing up the land. The lives of those at Carter House would be forever changed. Brigadier General Jacob D. Cox took possession of Carter House and set up his headquarters in the parlor. The Carters grabbed their slaves and they ran to their basement and hid in a north room there. The Lotz family that lived across the street hid with the Carters as well. The Carter's son, Todd, served as an aide to Confederate Brigadier General Thomas Benton Smith during the Battle of Franklin, and he was wounded during the fight. Several men carried his body to his family home, where he would die two days later. The really sad thing about this story is not only is he fighting in this battle right outside of his home, but he was just a few feet from the house. So it was almost like he was running to the house for safety. Oh, geez. And it took them a while to find him out there on the battleground. The Carter Farm never recovered, and it was sold in 1896. The state of Tennessee eventually bought the Carter House in 1951, and it opened the home to the public in 1953. The Battle of Franklin Trust manages the property today, and this is one of the places that you can tour. The battle continued to rage, and the Union once again had the upper hand. A side note about this is that the Union had an advantage because they had seven-shot Spencer's. Christopher Minor Spencer was an inventor, and he came up with the Spencer repeating rifle. It was revolutionary and reliable. The ammunition magazine was placed in the rifle's buttstock. There were seven shots that were manually fed into the chamber by lever action. It fired as fast as a man could cock the hammer and work the lever. The Confederates kept pressing forward. 
They were stopped by a twist of timbers that they were forced to climb. It was a horrible decision, and the Confederates were picked off. Union soldiers described the scene as nightmarish, with twisted corpses caught up in the timbers. The Confederates retreated and reformed and then went forward with a new attack six different times. They were nothing if not tenacious. Hood sent a final group forward in the dark. It was yet another foolish decision, and the group was quickly felled in the torchlight. Yeah, I don't understand why you would still be fighting at night when you can't really see what's going on. And we found this really cool map from the Civil War Trust that features the Battle of Franklin, and it has it mapped out so that you can see where the Union forces were and where the Confederate forces were that were fighting in this battle and how many different generals you had there. Just gives a really nice visual because it can be kind of a confusing battle. Try to describe to people and for them to see what all was going on. And that's in the show notes for this episode. The Confederates finally fell back, leaving thousands dead and wounded near the Carter House. Schofield drew his troops back to Nashville. In the end, 7,000 Confederates were left dead or wounded. Fourteen of them were generals. The Union suffered less than 2,000 casualties. It was a disastrous loss for the Confederacy. General Hood wasn't finished, though. He decided to pursue Schofield, and eventually there was the Battle of Nashville. So again, this General Hood is a tenacious guy, and he just keeps going forward. The Carton Mansion was built in 1826 and was later inherited by John and Caroline McGavick in 1844. The home was visited by dignitaries that included Andrew Jackson and Sam Houston. Right before the battle began on November 30th, Caroline noticed that the cattle were acting strangely. If she didn't know better, she would think they were scared. She would soon find out why the livestock were shaken. They apparently could hear the charge of General Hood's forces on the Union strongholds. The sounds increased as the battle raged and got closer to the mansion. The screams of dying men were everywhere. It must have been truly horrific for the McGavicks. When the battle wound down, injured men were brought to the house. Carolyn jumped into helping the wounded men. She told the servants to roll up the rugs to prevent them from being damaged, and the wounded were brought inside the mansion. In all, 200 men were cared for inside the house. Their wounds were dressed with pieces of clothing that had been torn apart, and everyone was fed. Doctors came to the house and literally performed operations in the parlor. Those that didn't make it were carried outside and laid out on the back porch. When the numbers of the dead were too much for the porch, bodies were stacked up against the back of the house. Unsubstantiated stories claim that there were so many dead, they were stacked in huge columns. The Confederate Army decided to bury their dead outside of the Carter House. John McGavick was not happy with that arrangement, and he decided to have the bodies moved down to Carton in an official cemetery. Caroline took it upon herself to make detailed records of the dead for the benefit of their families. They searched the bodies for any kind of identification they could find. She wanted to bring some kind of peace for the families of the lost. German immigrant Johann Albert Lotz purchased five acres of land from Fountain Branch Carter in 1855. Lotz built his home on the land, and it took him three years. He was a master carpenter, and his home displayed this skill. He built three fireplaces with mantles, and they revealed the range of his skill from simplistic to complex. A wonderful black walnut wraparound handrail stretches from the ground floor to the second floor. It was an engineering feat for the time. The outside features cartouches, millwork, and hand-carved acorn finials. 
The house boasts a battle scar made by a cannonball when it flew through the roof, through the floor of a second-story room, and landed on the first floor and rolled. A charred, rounded indentation can still be seen on the floor. The home was across from the Carter house, as mentioned before, so the house was witness to the battle and death as well, and the land was devastated. What we hadn't mentioned until now was that the Union had cut down most of the trees and poisoned the water. The Lots house today is a Civil War museum, and you can tour this, and I believe you can tour the Carton Mansion as well. So the Union thought if they cut down all the trees, there's nowhere for the Confederate forces to hide, and if they poisoned the water, obviously, they couldn't drink from it without dying as well. So they affected the families there and, of course, the livestock and the land just in general. Well, plus it kind of ruins the land for the people who might be staying later. Exactly. The fact that the bodies were moved after being buried may have led to some unrest at the Carton Mansion. The restless soldier is the most famous ghost at this location. His full-bodied apparition is seen walking through the mansion, and he likes to hang out on the back porch. Occasionally, he ventures away from the house and marches the perimeter of the house as if on guard duty. People know that he is nearby because of the sound of his noisy, booted footfalls. A former cook has been reluctant to leave the mansion as well. A photo captured her head hovering in the hallway many years ago. Caroline McGavick is still here in her home, some say. She is this location's woman in white. People are not sure which of these ghosts is fond of breaking glass, but it happens sometimes. The spirit of a girl who was killed here in the 1840s might also be the culprit. And I could not find a story to go with that young girl being killed there in the 1840s, so I'm not sure if that's just a legend or if there really is some fact to that story. The Lots house has its ghosts as well. In fact, this house was described by the Travel Channel in 2012 as one of the most terrifying places in America. A woman wearing a nightgown is seen and heard crying out for her lost loved ones. This house also features a young female ghost who is witnessed looking out through the windows. The current owner's wife claims she was asked by a woman one day in the home, where is Anne? The wife was the only one in the home, and this woman was in period clothing. Papers and other items go missing and are found elsewhere in the house. The craziest story from the Lot's house is about a 911 call made from the house one evening. When the police arrived, they found the entire family sleeping. No one had made the call. The phone lines were checked and everything seemed fine. Two more 911 calls were made from the house that evening. That is crazy because a spirit, how would they even know what 911 is? There weren't even telephones back then. Exactly, and how they worked it. It's weird. And who knows, sometimes electrical things get crossed. Maybe it was somebody else making the calls, and but they checked the phone box and said that there weren't crossed wires and they couldn't understand why it was doing that. Hmm. The Carter house is plagued with a poltergeist. Some claim that it's one of the Carter's daughters named Annie. A tour guide was interrupted one afternoon by a guest who pointed out that a statue behind the guide was moving up and down. That would be a little freaky. Yes, it would. You're looking at your tour guide and all of a sudden the statue starts dancing behind her. <laughs> it's jumping around. Objects appear and disappear on a regular basis. And staff members claim that they feel a child tug at their clothes. The apparition of a little girl was seen running in the upstairs hallway by a staff member. Makes us wonder if this same little girl is seen in all three houses. Makes you wonder that because each house has a little girl that's dead in it. The chances of that, to me, and the little girl coming back as something that's a haunting, seems improbable. And for anybody who's listened to our podcast for any length of time, they know that we're a little questionable when it comes to children ghosts. Right. So I'm wondering if this is the same spirit mimicking the same girl or just mimicking a little girl in all these different homes. 
Right. Well, there was enough unrest there that one spirit could easily go go anywhere there, it would seem. A disembodied female voice is heard occasionally, and people claim she sounds friendly. And since Todd Carter died in this house, it is not surprising that people claim to see his ghost as well. Recently, a visitor claimed she saw Todd sitting on the side of the bed of his former room. He was there only for a moment, and then he disappeared. The battlefield itself is rife with activity. There are disembodied voices, the sound of people running, gunshots, and drums. As has happened at Gettysburg, ghosts have been mistaken as reenactors. One visitor to the site claimed to have had a long conversation with a Confederate soldier who disappeared after their discussion. In all, 1,700 Confederate soldiers were buried in the cemetery. One lone specter has been seen standing guard outside the cemetery. Mischievous ghosts that some believe are twin brothers enjoy tickling people and tugging on clothing. And again, here we go. A young girl's spirit runs about the cemetery as well. In a perfect world, we could get all these witnesses together that have seen this young girl in all these different locations and get a description of her. Does she look the same in all of these experiences? Exactly. And the the interesting thing as well is that if it is more like we a lot of times don't think it's an actual child, but maybe another spirit taking on a child form, that would make sense that they would be playing in all locations to just get people looking at them. So much suffering happened on this plot of land. The Civil War brought strong emotions to the town of Franklin. Has something from the past continued on into the present? Is there residual energy continuing the fight? Do ghosts continue to walk these historic homes? Is the Franklin battlefield haunted? That is for you to decide. And there is a ghost tour that they offer there in Franklin. Franklin on foot. And if you go to franklinonfoot.com, they actually have a host of tours. Historical ones, ghost tours. I think there was a crime tour, Civil War tour. There's all kinds of stuff. So, How in the heck did we miss this when we were right there in Nashville? Well, you know, I think we were pretty focused on Nashville. <laughs> and when we were in the Nashville area, we were coming home. So I think we were just like, let's get home in one drive. We didn't want to stay one more night anywhere else. So. That's true, because we got all the way home from Nashville that last day. So we were pushing forward. On our next episode, we're going to go to North Carolina. Our assistant producer, Stephen Pappas, is going to join us, and we're going to share the history and hauntings of Old Salem there Very in North Carolina. Cool. Lots of stuff going on there. Because this one we can go visit since the Carolinas are on the agenda this year. Exactly. So we're planning on that. Make sure you check out our events tab over at the website. We are going to start throwing up a bunch of events there from the convention that we're going to be doing in Alton, Illinois. We are going to be taking a quick little weekend trip out to Denver. The man that Denise studied her Taekwondo under for years and years and years is retiring. So she wanted to go and be taught by him one last time. So I'm going to join her and we're going to do a Denver pub haunted tour. So if you're in the Denver area, we'd love to have you join us for that. I'm not sure exactly what weekend that is yet, but we'll get that up on the events page. We have the Carolinas tour that's coming up, so we will make sure to put down all of the different ghost tours that we're going to do in regards to that. And then also in April, we are also trying to get a group together to do our own private St. Augustine Lighthouse tour. All right, before we let everybody go, let's cover a couple of reviews. This username is Kludhaksk. It's K-L-D-H-A-K-S-K-S. Yay, five stars. Really love this podcast. Listen to it while I drive back and forth from college to home. Spooky, interesting, great topic selection. Keep it coming, please, ladies. Well, we certainly will do that. I'll just call you K. 
And Gristle, 421, five stars, so much fun. I have just this week caught up on all episodes of the History Ghost Bump podcast. It's taken me since mid-November when I joined the Legion of Bizarre States listeners to get caught up. They should form their own little support group. (laughs) That's a legion. I like that word. The legion (laughs) of... I am not disappointed. I have degrees in history and English, and I can appreciate the work that goes into making such a well-structured presentation. I especially love the moments in oddity and the moment in history sections. Your topics are never boring, and your guests are always a joy to listen to. I will be a subscriber for as long as you'll have me, and I've recommended this podcast to many of my friends and coworkers. Keep up the good work. We definitely appreciate recommending us out like you have, and we will have you for as long as you want to stay. Absolutely. And actually, he gave us his name, David from Indiana. And he also says, P.S., I'm a huge Disney fanatic, and knowing that Denise works there makes this podcast that much better. Woohoo! Perhaps a group outing to the Mickey's Not So Scary next October may be in order. That would be so much fun. So anybody who wants to come down from Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween party, history goes bump, that would be so cool. I can't even begin to say how cool that'd be. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we met up with one of our listeners and research crew members at Disney World. So if you guys are ever down here, let us know. And if we can manage it, we would love to meet up with you. Sometimes, you know, obviously we work, so we can't always do that. But we sure would love to meet you guys. Absolutely, because ghost tours are fun. But so it's just getting together and hanging out or coffee or a meal, too. So let us know when you're near us. We would love to see you and meet you. Doesn't have to just be creepy. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Griffin Meckelberg for doubling his pledge and also Melissa Patasini. Thank you for doubling your pledge as well. We greatly appreciate that. Thank you. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and... Societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time.